you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. today is someone that I consider a friend first and foremost but also someone that I really admire in the 2A community Chris Chang also known as Top Shot Chris welcome to our show thank you so much I'm excited to be here and uh yeah we're gonna have a good time today yeah absolutely uh Jake Wiskirchen was supposed to be with us, but unfortunately he is camping with the kids, but family comes first at uh, Walk the Talk America, so we understand, um, but he's going to miss this, but I'm sure he'll catch up with you eventually. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, let's begin with kind of who you are. Uh, I, I think most people know you, but there's going to be some that don't, right? So you got to start over a little bit um, with your background and, and how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, sure thing. My story, uh, sort of, I guess my claim to fame is being the season four champion of Top Shot on the History Channel. And for listeners that aren't familiar with the show Top Shot, it's this incredible shooting competition where they bring 18 competitors from all walks of life, from law enforcement to military guys, Olympic shooters, lifelong hunters, and then they bring in some of the self-taught amateur guys, which is one of the stocks that you know I had uh, on my season. And Top Shot puts these competitors into challenges that are so creative, so engaging, all of these on the edge of your seat challenges and competitions uh, combined with a wide variety of weapons, right? So one challenge might be with a cowboy, you know, revolver. And then the next challenge might be with a World War II machine gun. And then the next one might be with, you know, a modern day shotgun. And, you know, to be successful on top shot, you have to be really skilled at a wide variety of weapons. And, you know, for me being a self-taught amateur and uh, not having any competition trophies or awards or certifications or accolades. Like I was sort of right, this dark horse, you know, the, the guy who just, yeah, I love to go to the range every so often on the weekend. Um, but I ended up training incredibly hard, you know, to, to, uh, to win top shot. And that led to me writing a book called shoot to win. And that is a book for the new shooter. And it took all of the knowledge that I acquired while training to win Top Shot and, and put that in Shoot to Win as a way to help train the next generation of, of gun owners. And boy, you know, winning Top Shot along with a $100,000 cash prize and a professional shooting contract with Bass Pro Shops is 
sort of where I thought things would end. Like, like when I, when I won, I'm like, okay, well, of course, like I'm so excited to win. And, you know, I knew there would be sort of, you know, some like, you know, five seconds of fame kind of thing. And then, oh, you know, maybe, you know, go back into technology, which is where my, my primary career, you know, was. Uh, that's sort of what I thought was going to happen. But here we are eight years later and I'm you know, still engaged in the firearms industry and, and the community. And, you know, it's, it's just been such a, such a wild ride. You know, meeting, you know, folks like you and Jake and, and a lot of our other colleagues in the 2A space that, uh, you know, we're all trying to, you know, do the right thing with respect to protecting our Constitution and our Second Amendment rights. And, and also while having as much fun <laughs> as we can doing this and, and then making a positive difference in, in people's lives through, you know, firearm safety as well. Yeah, absolutely. Your story is very interesting to me because it kind of reminds me of like someone that, you know, watches a guitar, um, you know, competition on TV or something. And basically is like, I think I can do that. Um, and, And there's a lot of people that could probably do it, but to win it is just amazing to me right and not and be an amateur shooter and not really go around professionally and shooting um it's really cool <laughs> you know at, at what point did, like is was there a point at the sh- in the show where you were like i think i got this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah the, it's you know anybody who plays sports or has competed in any kind of game knows that you can't get ahead of yourself, right? It's like the second you start thinking, oh, I got this in the bag and, uh, you know, I'm a lock-in for the win. That, that's usually the start of everything crumbling and uh, yeah, your your ego gets in the way. Um, but yeah, it really, it, it took probably uh, getting down to the final four, which is the, you know, the final episode uh, on Top Shot. When I got to the final four is when I finally said, okay, you know, I've been here for about five weeks in this competition and I've uh, survived elimination rounds and I've, you know, beat other competitors. And yeah, I think I, I, I stand a chance to win. But, you know, when I first started the competition, you know, I, I, I didn't know any of the competitors, right? None of us knew each other. Uh, you know, we didn't really know what we were capable of in the world of Top Shot, which is essentially Disneyland for adults shooting guns. Like there's just, it's sort of unprecedented. There's no, there's nothing out there that can really, that really compares the Top Shot experience. Um, so not knowing what my competitors were capable of, and to be frank, I didn't know what I was capable of either you know, in Top Shot. I mean, all of my, you know, sort of uh, confidence just came from me visualizing myself succeeding in hypothetical you know top shot challenges i mean that's sort of where where a lot of my drive uh and and uh sort of abilities came from was this whole this whole concept of visualizing myself succeeding right which is a a very frequent tactic that uh, athletes will deploy right when we when we see ourselves succeeding we're more likely to actually succeed and that's actually a skill that translates over to business, to family, to life in general, right? If, if you fill your mind with positive views of yourself uh, and your family uh, succeeding and, and, and 
seeing yourself going through the steps of success, right? It's not just, it's not just about visualizing yourself at the end being successful. It's, it's about visualizing yourself completing all of the required steps, right? Along the journey and the end result of winning. So that, that's a really um, kind of important distinction in, in, in my mind, <coughs> excuse me, in my mind when we talk about visualizing success. So yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah, that final four moment uh, in my season where I finally said, yeah, I, I actually stand a chance to win this whole thing. And at that point it was, it was all about stamina, perseverance, keeping your nerves under control. It's something that didn't translate very completely on TV was, you know, the competitors, like our nerves were, were I mean, we were all just like on adrenaline, right? And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it is very nerve wracking, right? To be in a, in a televised you know, competition like that where, you know, millions of millions of people, right, are going to see how we all perform. And um, yeah, I mean, so many of us were uh, uh, right, just trying to you know, stay focused and, um, you know, shoot our best, right? That was really, really, really what it, what it came down to is we, we want to perform our best and, um, you know, make sure that we leave it all on the field. Yeah. Did at any point, did you feel any kind of pressure to win or was it always kind of like, I've, I'm, you know, I probably shouldn't have even been here. Like, you know, you kind of just, people probably sign up for these things or, or, or try to enter themselves in these things thinking, Hey, I, I probably won't get it, but you know, whatever, you know, and then you get in and you're probably like, oh, I'll enjoy the ride for however long it lasts. But as you keep progressing and maybe not for you, right? But maybe for other people, um, I've I've actually had friends that have been in competition type shows before. Uh, was there any outside pressure to win, or did you feel any pressure to win? Or you're like, I've gotten this far, I better win, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, the the only pressure I was feeling to win was the, my own my own expectations, right? My my own hopes and dreams pushing me and and just helping me focus uh right to to hit my targets be as fast as i can be and you know that's in stark contrast i think to some of my competitors where they had some external pressures right like right if you are you know a military sharpshooter you know we had a former swat commander you know we had olympic champion you know on my season right that like for for them right that they they're already champions right in sort of their own regard right outside of the competition and um you know a lot of their colleagues and their family and friends were all expecting them to do well but my friends and family were not expecting me to do well <laughs> right they're they're expecting to see me you know flame out probably in the first you know few few challenges uh, in the season and um so you know there that I would say that did benefit me though, where I just, I didn't, I didn't feel anyone except for me pressuring myself, right. To win. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. Um, you, you win, you win the prize, you win a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> mentally. 
that had to have had a massive effect on your confidence and just kind of a, a, a feeling of joy and excitement, right? I mean, that doesn't happen every day. You're one of very few people. Like if you take everybody in the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was thrilling. And, you know, one thing that I, you know, reflecting on my top shot experience, this was, a, so the experience was a full quarantine experience, which, you know, looking back it actually kind of set me up for success for the current quarantine <laughs> <Right>. situation, <laughs> except, you know, on, in, in the top shot competition, we did not have access to, our cell phones, laptops, no internet, no TV, no radio, no nothing, no contact with the outside world. So it was a very different kind of quarantine and we weren't allowed to go anywhere. We were like stuck in the top shot house. So that was similar to sort of what many of us are experiencing now. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the most, th one of the most thrilling parts um, of the, of, of the whole top shot experience was just feeling alive right. and and being so hyper present and in, in the moment was um it had been a long time since i had had an experience like that right where i just needed to be so focused and the the the, the consequences for losing for me losing focus right were so high Right. If I lose focus, that that could mean the difference between me winning and losing a challenge. Right. And that right. could mean me going home. Right. And the whole the whole thing's over. Um, and yeah, winning the money uh, was uh, was a little surreal. It was, um, you know, there was a whole bunch of sort of, you know, literally a big explosion at the end of uh, and end of the final challenge. Uh, I, I won with a grenade launcher. So anybody who wants to see a. <laughs> super cool way to end a and and the you know kind of championship round yeah I, I won with this grenade launcher huge explosions um you know and, and then afterwards you know i got led into uh you know a, a trailer where all the production team you know folks and the lawyers were there and i signed some paperwork and um they said all right yeah it's time to leave the top shot house and uh they actually put us in a hotel for for the night and then you know flew home uh to san francisco the the next day for me um but yeah you know winning winning a hundred thousand dollars it's not something that uh, happens to many people like you said and I, I i wanted to take advantage of that unique moment in time and I was working full time at Google and I decided after winning that I was going to quit and, you know, take, take the hundred thousand dollars and uh, leave the tech industry and then come into the firearms industry full time right. and just see what I could make of it. And I had no idea what I was doing. My, my parents, when I told them I was going to quit Google, they were extremely concerned. <laughs> they were, they're like, Chris, you're giving up a, you know, a great, great job at one of the you know, most successful companies in the world. It's incredibly stable. You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to make money? And I remember telling him, like, I have no idea. Like, I don't, I don't know what people do to make a living in the firearms industry and, you know, what my options are, but, uh, I wanted to, you know, to ride the momentum and, 
you know, leverage the opportunity. And I'm so thankful, right, for, for taking that risk. And, right. you know, I, I hope one thing that I, that I, that I, I hope to, um, you know, to inspire amongst people is to, to take more risks, right, in your own, in your own life. Um, you know, calculated risks that could increase your ability to succeed more, uh, right? That hopefully will then lead to, you know, more happiness and more satisfaction in your life. Because um, I feel like I'm always, I always feel the most alive and the most energized when I take risks. And that means doing things that push my physical, mental, emotional, uh, you know, boundaries and uh, make me a better person and learning new skills and uh, and going out there to to just and you know be adventurous yeah and, no doubt and, and oh sorry yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off I, I was gonna say one of the things that um so I I actually we met at SHOT Show one year and I was with Rob Pincus and we were at the the circle bar for everyone that knows, you know, SHOT Show, they know that there's a circle bar that everyone kind of goes and hangs out at. Um, and and you had just won. And, and I don't know if you remember this, but we were actually having this conversation because I was kind of like, well, what what now? Like, what? where do you go? Do you start to, you know, do you open up your own training academy? Do you do this? Do you do that? We were kind of going over things um, at the time. And um, it's kind of fun to see, you know, the journey and, and things happened you made them happen like you got into the firearms industry um i'm sure when you came into the firearms industry you had a little bit you you probably weren't the guy you know obviously you're not the guy you are now right you grow you start to find missions while you're inside the 2a community um can you tell me a little bit about your journey through the 2a industry because i look at you now as somebody who is an influencer you know, you're not only like this great shooter, um, you, you not only have a business mind, but I think that you're a role model for many, um, you know, to the community. So if you could talk about that, I think that'd be good. Yeah, sure thing. You know, so having come from tech, you know, I, my, my career started in Silicon Valley and, um, you know, it's a very, you know, progressive and uh, you know, liberal environment where, you know, I'm gay. And so there's a lot of, you know, LGBT employees in Silicon Valley and I'm Asian and there's a lot of, you know, Asians in, in Silicon Valley as well. And coming into the second amendment community, you know, I, I didn't have many gun friends at the time. And, uh, you know, I was a little concerned at first. I'm like, Oh, great. You know, am I going to, Am I going to run into, uh, you know, a bunch of anti-gay people in the industry? And am I going to, you know, have to, you know, am I going to have to like basically come out all over again, right? In this new industry, which, which I essentially, I, I did. And that was right. kind of fascinating because I never imagined that I would have to uh, kind of quote unquote come out, you know, a second time, you know, it, within my career. Cause you know, in Silicon Valley, you know, like, yeah, sure. Right. I'm, I'm out and uh, it's no big deal, but I didn't know what that looked like in the firearms community. Um, so, you know, I, I, I came into the Second Amendment uh, community space with a little bit of hesitation, right? A little bit of skepticism and, uh, you know, some low-level fear, right? That, oh my gosh, I, our, 
career opportunities, are my career opportunities going to be limited, right? If somebody, you know, because, you know, because I'm gay. Right. And these are the kind of things that, um, you know, I just had to uh, accept that. Sure. Right. There, there might be some anti-gay folks in the industry and that's, that's too bad. You know, it's, it's more, that's too bad for them. And, um, you know, for, for any opportunities that might be closed off to me, I, my personal experience as well, there's been plenty of other opportunities that have opened up. Um, there's been no shortage of, uh, impactful things that, uh, you know, I've been invited uh, you know, to participate in, you know, for, you know the industry right, has invited me right, to, to partake in certain things. Uh, I mean, one key example is, uh, you know, I'm a firearms uh, safety ambassador for the NSSF and right. have made uh, a number, gosh, you know, maybe 50 some videos, you know, with the NSSF uh, helping bring new shooters into into the space and help help educate you know from everything like what does going to a gun shop look like what does buying your first pistol or your first shotgun look like how do you even go about starting that process um, and and i think i always try and remember what it was like to be a relatively new shooter because there's a lot of fear and sort of uncertainty and doubt that a, that a, a new gun owner has, right? That there's this general fear of firearms, which I think, right, some level of fear is healthy, right? There has to be a healthy respect of, of the firearm, right? You, you need to, and we know that once you eventually learn how to safely handle and operate it, there's less to fear. Uh, and you just need to make sure, right, that you're always thinking safety first. Um, and so, uh, if we always remember what it's like to be that new shooter, right. It, it, mm-hmm. it will, will make the industry more welcoming. Right. Um, you know, I remember my first, my foray into IDPA, uh, which is a you know competition shooting discipline. And I was at my home range and this was back in 2009 or something. It was before top shot when and I wasn't shooting uh, much at all. And I remember seeing, people with holstered pistols, you know, un, you know, there'd be a beep and they'd unholster their pistol. They would be running around and shooting targets. And as a civilian, I was sitting there looking, I'm like, Oh, this must be like law enforcement or military people, you know, doing practice exercises. And and it took me, it, it took some effort on my part. I actually like, talked to some, I went up to somebody in that squad and I said, Hey, like, this is really cool. Like, what is this? I'm like, Oh, are you military? And and like, Oh no, like they're just, I'm a regular civilian. IDPA is open to anybody you know, who wants to sign up. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, some people are not going to necessarily be comfortable, right. Going up and just talking to somebody at the range. And so I'm always just mindful of, okay, right. How, how do we make sure that people, one, they have the information that they need or want, right, to get started in whether it's IDPA or USPSA shooting or three gun, trap shooting, skeet shooting, whatever, whatever discipline we're talking about. Uh, how do they get the information? And then from a cultural perspective, how do we make sure that 
those of us who are experienced, you know, remember how to make people feel welcome, right? And right. and to not be off-putting. Like I think one thing that frustrates me sometimes when um, I see you know some more experienced uh, gun owners when they're teaching new shooters. So I see this with with handgun instruction in particular. And then the thing that, that bothers me is the simple act of loading a magazine and a new shooter not understanding which way the rounds should face in a magazine. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like a very obvious thing for, for those of us who are you know, uh, experienced pistol shooters. But I remember being confused right, right when I was a, a new shooter, especially with like a Browning Buckmark, like I see the sort of strange you know, magazines that have, right, the little tab that you got to you know, push down the spring. And then, you know, like, I don't know which way, you know, the bullet's supposed to face that, that kind of stuff. Um, it's secondhand nature to, to many of us now, but back to, you know, re- remembering what it's like to be a new shooter. If a new shooter has a negative first experience with firearms even as simple as oh they're made to feel stupid because right they don't know which way the rounds are supposed to go in right that negative experience is going to reduce the likelihood that they're going to come back right and do it again and we obviously want to get new shooters right to have that amazing first experience and right like we can talk all we want about how fun guns are and how impactful they are but there's just nothing that replaces right getting somebody out to the range you know, pulling the trigger and and just experiencing uh, shooting guns for themselves. Uh, a second quick story that I, I want to you know tell on this point. You know, a lot of people back to that fear that, that you know some new shooters have. It uh, it can it, it can really go in some very interesting. The, the fear can go in some interesting directions, and. Five some years ago, I was uh, I was I took a, a colleague to the range, and I purposefully brought and you know it was an AR-15. I uh, brought my M2, you know Benelli shotgun, and I brought my Glock 34, just sort of like a typical three gun setup. Right. And, you know we're shooting through all the guns, and um, when we get to the AR, you know he fired a few rounds, and then I told him you know the safety on and put the gun down on the table. And then I asked him, you know, how did, how did that feel? Right. Like what, how did that, how did that all feel? And, you know, many new shooters, you know, their reactions like, Oh, right. That was awesome. Like that was rad. Like, can I shoot faster? But this reaction was so different and it will, it's just always stuck with me. And the reaction was, Wow. I was really expecting to feel evil shooting this gun. Hmm. And I was surprised that when I pulled the trigger that I, I didn't feel evil and I didn't feel like I would go and hurt people with this gun. And I think that's what, you know, and I know that like there's many other, other Americans and people that think like that's what guns do. Right, that guns somehow turn people bad or that they will influence people to do bad things. And, and I think that's such a it's such an interesting perspective for us to keep in mind when we're trying to advocate 
you know, four Second Amendment freedoms that, right, we, we talk about freedom, but I think a lot of times other, you know, anti-gun people, they just, they just think fear. They think, right, guns are going to turn people evil. And as illogical as that may sound, that's what some people think. And that's just important for us to keep in mind. Yeah, I think it's, it, so we have similar backgrounds in the sense that like I grew up in places that ha, were very liberal environments. Um, you know, I grew up obviously in San Francisco, New Jersey, right? Two, two spots. Mm-hmm. So I was in the city. Um, but the one thing about the firearms industry that I've always appreciated was their acceptance of me. Right. But I look at myself and I'm like, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I kind of make a joke about it. I, they call me, I'm still called the ungun gun guy because I've been in it so long, but you know, no one looks at me as, <laughs> as the guy they're going to go to for shooting advice or anything like that. Um, but I do find that outside of gun world, a lot of people do go to me because they're not afraid to ask me, you know, any kind of question because they know that I'm going to walk them through it because I appreciate the fear and anxiety that anyone could have coming into this industry, whether it be actually firing the gun, which is a very, you know, it could be a very powerful, uh, scary experience for people, right? Um, some people are just scared going in. You know, you talk about the person put the firearm down and said, I, I was expecting to feel evil, right? Well, some people have that, you know, um, it, it's the opposite, right? Like they go into it and then they shoot the firearm and they just don't like how loud it is. And, and, and then they want to throw yeah. their hands up and quit. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But you know, it's one of the reasons why I think your work and, and some of the other people that have come up lately, I call them, I hate to use the word influencer, but I mean, they are, they influence people and they, they have these certain lanes. Um, I think that it's so important uh, for people to be mindful of that. Um, you know, I tell this story all the time. I was talking to Maj Torrey from Black Guns Matter. And, you know, I said, I need the total, like, commando, prior from a cold dead hands guy. I, I, I don't mind him being there. Because when somebody looks at that guy and says, I can't even relate to that person. I know that they could look over to me or someone like yourself and be like, that's who I relate to. Like, that's who I'm going to have teach me. And bring me into this world. Um, it, it, the, the industry is so, there's so many different types of people in the industry. And I've, I'm seeing it grow. I think it's getting, it's going in the right direction. I think now too, that we're getting this a little bit of a pass um, in the court of public opinion because of the craziness that's happening with COVID and, you know, a lot of the riots and protesting. Uh, there's a ton of new gun buyers out there um, for, for a good question for you would be if you could debunk like, you know, something about the, the two a industry, what would it be? You know, if you're talking to non gun people, like what kind of myth? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think the, uh, the myth that was dispelled for me personally, uh, is that the, the second amendment community are just a bunch of, you know, rednecks, mm-hmm. you know, uneducated rednecks, right? That's a sort of this, simplified stereotype that the mainstream media propels and that has been totally false you know for 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 me you know i after i left google and you know shop professionally for bass pro shops for almost four years i traveled across the country and met 
you know, tens of thousands of, uh, you know, industry people, uh, right. And then regular Americans, uh, right. At, at gun shows at, you know, on the three gun circuit, you know, competing, you know, side by side with me. And, uh, the, the, the second amendment community is a huge, big tent. And I didn't realize that until, you know, I got way more involved and it's something that I, I, I want people to know that, Right. There are people from all races and right, uh, sexual orientations mm-hmm. and you know, religions. And uh, it, it's 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 just an amazing group of people who are all united around our appreciation for for firearms and, and safety and, and personal protection. And uh, I'm just I'm so thankful for having learned that it's. Um, again, something I, I really want to, uh, you know, shine the light on, and I know you and, and many of our colleagues as well, um, you know, definitely uh, appreciate the diversity and uh, the inclusive nature of, of the community. And having said that, where do you think we still lack? What would you like to see yeah. us improve on? I know it's a that tough one a- to throw on you. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. One thing, I guess, let me, let me sort of uh, rewind the tape a little bit to, to the early 2010s when I first started in the industry. Um, I remember that there wasn't a huge focus on women. Mm -hmm. And you look at the industry now and the products available to women, the number of women uh, shooters. I mean, the, the demographics, um, you know, in the, in the women's space has exploded in such a great way, right? The, the number of women, um, you know, in, in the shooting sports and uh, getting concealed carry permits and buying firearms, it's, it's high, it's higher than it's ever been. And, you know, it was, it's been, an eye-opening moment for the industry to realize, okay, hey, we can market to more than just middle-aged white guys, right? right? There, there's, there are all these other demographics like women, the LGBT community, you know, let's look at the African-American community, right? Like considering everything, you know, that's been happening with all the violence, the protests, um, you know, if, you know, the, I guess the, the paradox for me is, all right, if you don't trust the police, then what's a good way to, you know, take care of your own personal protection? Right. It's, you should probably buy a firearm, which is obviously something that, you know, millions of Americans are, are wisening up to uh, over the first half of the year, um, right? It's like, hey, in unstable times, right, when you either don't trust law enforcement or if they're going to be overwhelmed, and not able to be there for you, then you are responsible for protecting yourself and your family and your loved ones. And that simple concept that transcends race, right? right. This it's really, you know, I, it transcends race, but I think many, many Americans uh, self-identify, right? Like not self they often view their race as a core part of who they are. Right. 
And so therefore, often the marketing messages like sort of need to be tailored to them. I, I would not be a good marketer. I don't think sometimes because like I just I just don't like I don't need to see an Asian person, you know, holding a gun in order to right. like convince me <laughs> like that this is a thing I can do. But uh, that's I don't think that's your average person. I think most people, you know, want to see if they're a woman, they want to see a, a you know advertisement with a woman. Um, right with like female apparel right like a concealed carry purse you know or the yoga pant belly band uh you know uh you know concealed carry uh you know holster um so you know i i think while while some of these um you know firearms uh you know civil rights and freedoms concepts transcend race it, it's still helpful to you know, to, to relate and associate to people's personal experiences. And if that means talking about race, right. And what firearms ownership could mean from a racial perspective or, you know, from an LGBT perspective. Right. So, I mean, here, here's where, here's where if, if you are a targeted minority, right, that it can really, it can really make a difference, right. To, to lean into some of the identity politics. So look, right. Gay people are targeted for death, right? And and some people in America, right, uh, just want gay people dead. And this is you know all across you know and across the world. It's not right. unique to to America. People forget that um, sometimes. I think. I, yeah, I, I do. And, I, yeah, and so if you are LGBT and if you if your life is being threatened, then having a gun, whether in your home or on your person is 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 just logical right? especially if you don't trust law enforcement you know i live in san francisco um right and and you know there was a time when you know or you, let's look at new york right and the stonewall riots right were, were the famous sort of you know beginning of the lgbt you know civil rights movement you know where the cops in, in new york were coming in and basically arresting gay people in bars you know just 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 for no reason but that spurred you know, the Stonewall riots. And so, right, if you're a gay person who doesn't, right, if you don't trust law enforcement and you're being targeted for violence, like this is where owning a gun is just, it's its just, the, it's a logical thing to consider. And I want to emphasize the word consider. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily advocate that everybody own a gun because, you know, everybody is, not necessarily willing to put in the time um, to, to train, right? To, and yeah. to handle a firearm responsibly, right? And, you know, this other story that I have from, from a former colleague, you know, to emphasize the point, right? So he was telling me, he's like, hey, uh, his girlfriend at the time lived, uh, you know, like 45 minutes, you know, down in the peninsula. He lived here in San Francisco. And he said, hey, I split my time between San Francisco and down in the peninsula. And he stays with her. And he said, now, when I'm not at her place, I want her to have a gun, right? So she can protect herself when I'm not there. I'm like, okay, this is all like very rational. We go through your typical conversation. Okay, you know, pistol, rifle, shotgun, you know, where does she live? You know, what is... What do her surroundings look like? Uh, does she have a preference? Has she shot before? And ultimately, we came down to okay, twenty gauge shotgun. Right? She's a small framed individual, like twenty gauge shotgun or a twelve gauge shotgun. You know, could be um, you know right on the money. 
But then the whole conversation, this was maybe, you know, after an hour, hour and a half of talking about this, it comes down to, I, I asked myself, okay, look, okay, so part of this is, right, she gets her shotgun, but then she's going to need to take some kind of training class, right, and invest, you know, I don't know, let's call it $300, $400, right, for, for some training class, for the ammunition, for, you know, um, and, and this is going to be a thing she'll need to shoot the gun at least like once a year, like at least. Right. And I said, do you think, you know, this is, uh, something that she'd be able to do? And his answer was, Oh no, I don't think she's not going to put in the time and she's not willing to pay that, that money to, to, to train. And so I remember asking him like, okay, so help me understand like if she's going to buy a shotgun like how do you in your mind see her using it to keep her safe and his answer was oh okay well you know if there's like a bad guy who like you know bro- breaks through her door or whatever that she can lock her bedroom door she can grab the shotgun and and literally like cower in the corner and like hug the gun, right. like hug it. Like, like he literally said, like she can sit on the ground in the corner and the gun will be pointing up and she'll hug it. And I was like, no, like that's, that's just, I can't recommend right, that you buy a shotgun for her. Or she buys a shotgun. Cause that's just, that's just not safe. Right. If she's not going to train and learn how to use it, she's going to hurt herself or, you know, inadvertently hurt someone else. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, guns are not for everybody. Um, I mean, so back to that, <laughs> back to what I was saying earlier, but I hope people will consider purchasing a firearm because that's sort of right. That first barrier, right. To just get someone in the mental headspace to say, Hey, right. Maybe with shelter in place and pandemic and riots and just general threats that exist <laughs> out there that maybe buying a firearm could be a good idea like that is that's a huge win just to get to to that point and then right you can go through those additional exploratory questions you know down down the road yeah see i i do when people ask me or they ask my opinion especially when it's a female right and because i've I've been in that situation before where it's like i want to get her a gun so she can protect herself and then you ask the question, like, are they comfortable with guns? Would, would they would they train? I always default then, hey, like, maybe we start with a taser. <laughs> Taser's a little bit yeah. easier, you know, um, because... Pepper spray. Pepper spray, something, because I'm just like, I, because you know exactly what's going to happen. That person's going to come through the door, kick the door down, and they're not going to want to touch the... They're not even going to go for the gun. You know what I mean? They're not going to fire the gun if they don't want to touch the gun. They got to be comfortable with using something to defend themselves. Um, So a shotgun for somebody who's not going to try to use it or practice with it and maybe take a couple of courses in in self-defense and training and things like that. I just don't think that that makes much sense, but I think sometimes you got to, you got to start off slow and then work towards, you know, that ultimate goal, I guess for them. You know, but, but that's why you are the one to tell them that, you know, yeah. you know, it's shooting, you know, we've all been there in the, in the courses and especially when you go get your CCW, I mean, shooting someone is not going to be an easy thing, Mm-mm. you know, mentally, um, you know, you have, there's law aspects to it. 
uh, which is actually kind of a good segue into a, a horrifying story that you had that actually when you were telling it, because no one got hurt in the end, the banter between you and your husband was almost like a movie scene to me. You, can, you, can you tell that story? Yeah, sure thing. <laughs> you know, boy, um, and it's funny you mentioned the story because I was literally just thinking about that experience. Um, so, you know, earlier last year, um, you know, my husband and I, it's, a, it's Sunday night. It's like 1130 p.m. We're up late. Uh, I remember we were just finishing, you know, folding some laundry and just, you know, getting ready for the week. And upstairs, where which is where our main, you know, uh, door is, we start hearing this like really loud banging on the door. And we're not expecting anybody. It's, you know, 11.30 p.m. on a Sunday. And all of a sudden, you know, I go to the front door and there is this just meth head, right, banging on the door, screaming, someone's trying to kill me open the door. And, you know, I hear that. I'm like, Oh, Oh, hell no. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not opening the door. Not, not for, not for you, not for anyone. And, you know, I, I you know, start yelling at the guy like, Hey, you know, go away, go away. And he just kept, he just kept banging on the door and screaming, you know, someone's trying to kill me, you know, let me in. And you know, I'm just like, this is, this is a, a hoax. You know, he's just trying to right, play, the victim card here to try and get me to open the door. And the next thing you know, like I'm in handcuffs or I'm, you know, knocked out and my right. house is getting robbed kind of thing. So, you know, I call 911 on the phone with police, but then my husband, right. comes up from downstairs. Like he's obviously like checking out what the hell is going on. And we have a, uh, uh, you know, our four month old puppy who she has no idea like what's going on either, but there was this moment right? Where I was, I was just stuck, right? I was on the phone with 911. My guns are upstairs and I, I wanted to go arm myself, but you know, I've got one hand with my phone. I, I don't have my keys right to, to my safe on me. You know, it's like the, 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 the takeaway was like, I just wasn't prepared. I, when we, and to be, and I, I put this on my Facebook post about this, that, you know, I didn't have a plan. Like my husband and I did not have a plan around, okay, right. Um, you know, if, if, if a certain thing like that happened, like he should have been the one to call the police. Right. And like, so that would free me up to go mm -hmm. right, and get a firearm. Um, I mean, now I have a firearm staged, you know, near the front door, which was, you know, part of the after action report from that whole incident. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was so eye-opening for me to, to, you know, so for everyone listening, you know, my background is I'm, I'm a professional marksman, so I can teach you how to shoot guns you know, accurately, but I'm not a home defense or personal protection, right? Specialist. Like those are extremely different things. Uh, and so I still consider myself uh, a student, you know, of, you know, home defense and, and personal protection, um, and, you know, I, I mean, I know from the minimal training that I had for, for, you know, home, home defense is that you should always have a plan. Like that's just, it's just like, right. The bread and butter thing. But the, but the problem was my husband is not a willing participant in <laughs> talking about like, well, what is our plan? Like the whole idea of envisioning your house or your person under threat, like that is not a common 
practice, right, for him, like it is for for me or for um, you know many other many other gun owners. So it's just it's been hard to you know nego- I mean, right, every marriage, every relationship is some kind of negotiation or you know compromise and yeah. conversation. Um, so we we have had a little bit more of a conversation, you know, since that incident. But um, you know, we're we're to be frank, yeah, we don't have like the plan or a set of plans in place like like I would want. But it's uh it's a process and I hope that we will eventually get get to where I want us to be. Well and that, you know, that's a good point that you make um about you know sometimes a lot of people, right? They don't make these plans. They don't think about these things because they don't want to think about evil and they don't want to think about something bad happening. It's one of the ways that I feel like I've always been able to relate to people that are either gun neutral or anti-gun, right? Because many times when I listen to them, um, I, I do feel that they don't want to see people hurt and they don't want to see people die. Right. And that's, that's really common ground that we stand on. Um, but I always use this analogy, like growing up, you know, I was a Star Trek kid. I used to watch Star Trek and I loved it. And I loved feeling like I was part of that bridge where we all got along. There was like all different people, right? You had, you had, you even had a Klingon in there, like, yeah, (laughs) you know, and everybody got along and everybody's common enemy was outside of the starship. You know, but inside of the starship, it was perfect, <laughs> you know, and I think, <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people, that's the way they see life. And um, I think that's sometimes why it's hard for certain people to relate to people in the 2A community, because we talk about the constant threat all the time, right? And that's a tough thing to kind of mentally swallow, um, where you're like, there could be a threat around the corner. You know, my, my kid and I could be at the mall and, you know, someone could shoot, right? We think about those things. I think a lot of people don't, right? They try, they, you know, mm-hmm. in their head, it's like, and it's true, right? If you look at overall numbers, it's like you, the odds of being in a mass shooting are, are, are depending on where you live, are low, you know, mm-hmm. compared to, say, like something like suicide, right? Which is there's an insane chance of suicide if you have a firearm in the house. Um, but it's, it doesn't make anybody bad. It's just, it's funny cause it's a give and take. I actually have a story similar to, you know, now that you're telling this story and I think about it when, I, when I went through my first divorce, um, I moved into this building called Panorama, which is in Las Vegas and it's a high rise. And I would say it's the place where single people, People who have just been divorced or people that are out having fun move into. Um, It's two buildings right next to the Strip. Most of you that have come to Vegas have probably seen it and been like, I wonder what those buildings are because it's across from like the Cosmopolitan and Aria on the other side of the 15. Um, But the very first night I had my daughters staying over in in the high rise. Right. So when we pull up, my daughters are like, we live in a hotel now. And I'm like, no, um, but of course the very first night that we're, that they're in there at three in the morning, this lady just starts banging on my door saying, please let me in. They're, they're trying to kill me. Same type of situation. Wow. And my daughter's freaked out. Right. So I jump up 
and I have quick access safe. It was a two bedroom apartment. It wasn't a very, <laughs> it didn't take that long to get to the door. But, uh, so I, I grab my gun from the safe and I run over to the door and I look out the peephole and she's just banging on the door and she's looking left and right. And I don't know why I did this. My first reaction was I put, I put the firearm up to the door, <laughs> like as if <laughs> as if she was gonna come through, like through the peephole. It, it, it was just a reaction because she was banging on the door so hard. And then I was like looking, and I, my daughter was you know behind me, my oldest daughter, and I'm like, okay, this is I'm not helping the situation. <laughs> like the optics don't look great. Um, and I remember, dummy, you live in a high rise. It has security and a front desk. <laughs> so, because mm-hmm. at one point I thought about opening the door and grabbing her and bringing her in. Like, I, oh, wow. You know, these are the things you think about because I'm just like, if someone's attacking her, I got to get her out of there. And then once again, I'm like, this is not a movie, idiot. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I don't even know. I, I've never even tried that, right? To hold a gun in one hand and like grab somebody and bring them through a door. So, uh, thank God, like they're the one part of my brain that has a little bit of common sense is like, put the gun down and call the front desk and tell security to handle this This is part of why your rent's so expensive. (laughs) So I I ended up calling security and they came up and took care of it. And and unfortunately it was a girl who was spun out on some sort of drug. Um, but you know, it was a, it's like great, the perfect, and you know, you're going through a divorce and, anything can be used against you in a child custody battle <laughs> and i was oh, like boy. yeah i knew i was like oh god i'm gonna hear about that one um it all worked out in the end but um you know it's those moments <laughs> so it's very similar uh to to that night that you had where you have somebody yeah, knocking and, the door and you know there's there's a, a coda you know to to the episodes you know the whole thing lasted a short two minutes. Like I have security cameras in my house and like, you know, afterwards I was reviewing, you know, reviewing the tape and such. And here's, here are two scary things. Number one, there actually was another guy outside who was threatening to beat the crap out of the guy banging on my front door. And he had a crowbar or a crowbar type item um, so right. The, the guy who actually was under threat. So from my perspective though, right. That, what does that mean? Okay. I not only have one threat at my door, I have two threats, right. you know, one on the door, one on the sidewalk, which is where the other guy was. And, um, you know, the other scary thing that happened was when I called 911, you know, I asked, they like, yeah, you know, we're going to dispatch you know, the police right away and they never came to my door. They never came to take the report, right? We stayed up until one thirty in the morning waiting for the police to show up just so, you know, we could like document everything and they never showed up. And like, that was such a frustrating and, and scary thing that happened, right? Cause what happens if the guy actually broke the door stab me and I'm like bleeding out on the floor and like nobody would have come. And there was, so I actually, you know, um, submitted an information request and got the radio calls and the, the dispatcher logs. Uh, there were six nine one one calls, right? One was mine. 
fiver from my neighbors. And you know, the police never showed up after, you know, after I requested, you know, in the frantic 911 call to like, right, to have, have some officers come in and check on things. So, you know, um, back to the, hey, you know, are, are the police always there for you? No. No. Do they want to be? Sure. Right. Of course they want to be, but especially if you live in a major city where there's all sorts of just stuff going on at all hours of, of the day, it's just not always, you know, right. Feasible to, to rely on the police. You know, I, I grew up in Southern California in Orange County and there it's a, it's a, it's a very safe community, but the culture is such that I grew up being taught if I'm ever in trouble, just call 911 and the cops will be there immediately. And in a suburb, quiet suburban community, that's generally the case, right? Like, yeah, the, the cops are usually there very quickly, but that's not, that's not how it is in all parts of America, right? Especially like not in a major city. Um, so that whole concept of, um, you know, self-reliance and, you know, taking, uh, you know, personal protection into, uh, into our own hands is uh, something that, um, you know, it continues to resonate with me. And then, and, uh, I hope, uh, obviously I hope nothing like that happens again, but, uh, if it does, my hope is we'll be more prepared next time. No, absolutely. It's funny. Uh, I have a story in 2006 when I, I went back to work, uh, for my family and, and got back in the firearms industry. I was in, for, I was in it for a short period of time in 98. And then I left almost like immediately and came back in 2006. Well, I was a, I was a sales rep for Eagle Imports. So I would go to different cities um, and visit dealers, call on dealers and everything like that. And I was at a bar one night in Columbus, Ohio, and it was a college bar. <laughs> and uh, the girl was talking to me and we were having a great time until I told her I work in firearms and sell firearms. And <laughs> then it went completely South. Oh, um, no. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, you know, I was still trying to talk to her and you know, she, the, the conversation was getting a little heated. And you know, if, at one point I was like, listen, you don't need a gun. You think you don't need a gun, but you really don't know. I mean, you're just, you know, pretty blonde white girl, probably in a sorority. Daddy's probably paying for college. You probably live in the nicest neighborhood or whatever. It's like some people need a gun. And I remember she tried to, she tried to be like, oh my God, like that was racist. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she, she literally goes and grabs this big black bouncer, <laughs> brings him over to me. And she's like, say the thing that you just said to me. And I basically repeated it. Right. And it was so funny because he goes, honey, I don't know where you grew up, but where I grew up, the police weren't even going to help you and you needed to defend yourself. I needed a gun. <laughs> and I, I, thought, I thought it was the funniest story because not, hey, not only did she try to throw me under the bus, right? Like, like, oh, okay. And then it just backfired in her face. So I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I, I don't think we can rely on other people for our safety. I think we have to, to rely on ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, and I don't think enough people think about that, you know? So I have certain friends that have nothing in their house, nothing. I mean, they have like knives in the kitchen, 
if you want to get in a knife fight, you know, but <laughs> they never really think about that plan. And, and, you know, going back to the plan that you say that you're working on, you know, or, you know, you're right though. You, everyone should have a plan or a thought process. Um, you know, even saying to your spouse, I will go do this. You call the police. Like that is always the way we do this. Um, you know, I think that's very intelligent because uh, those are traumatic experiences. Uh, you know, that, talk about things that you can get PTSD from and, you know, have trauma is, is a situation like that, a home invasion or anything like that. Um, you know, it's definitely something you play on your mental health. Yeah, indeed. It is uh, a very unpleasant experience. And, you know, I mean, for, for me, like, at the end of the day, nothing bad happened other than my nerves got a little rattled. My you know, husband and I had some, you know, arguments over, you know, the whole plan and lack of plan. But, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine how much more traumatic, um, you know, things can get if, if uh, you actually get assaulted, right? If your house actually gets broken into and, um, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of, uh, the fact that it didn't escalate, you know, to, you know, any further than it did. And it just was, you know, meth, meth head banging on my door <laughs> yeah. and, uh, keeping me up at night. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to segue into, uh, just some of the work that you're involved in. And this is kind of a funny story. Um, when I started to get involved and really ramp up my work in, uh, mental health and suicide prevention, um, and started walking in the mental health circles. I, um, I was always, I always look for people that I feel I can bring into the circles because sometimes, you know, you go into those circles and, and there, there's a lot of anti-gun people on that side or, or people that are, you know, they, they're not fond of firearms and they think there should be restrictions and everything like that. So I just have to be careful who I bring into those circles just because I need people to hear them, right? I need people to hear them. I don't need people to back down, but I need them to hear them and be able to have an intelligent conversation, um, one that involves grace and understanding. Uh, and so, you know, I was going to San Francisco. Uh, this is right actually before COVID hit, and we went to a conference together. And I remember when I got invited to the conference, I thought about you, and I was like, oh, I want to bring Chris. I want to bring Chris um, because I feel like you're a good ambassador for the 2A community. I, I could, you, I think you, 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 you have compassion, you, your understanding of all walks of life, you transcend over, you know, different races and, and cultures, obviously. So, um, but when we get there, I'm thinking like, well, if I can get Chris behind a lot of this stuff, I'll be happy. And, you know, and little did I know <laughs> you, you are knee deep in this as well. Uh, suicide prevention. Can you talk about some of your work in that? Uh, Cause I was kind of yeah. shocked when you started talking to people there and, and NSSF was there and Joe Bartosi was there. Uh, you know, that's the president of NSSF. So it was fun to watch, you know, cause I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, uh, I mean, I was so, so uh, happy to, uh, you know, get your invitation to the event. And, um, you know, my involvement in the suicide prevention space started um, back in 2013, give or take. And, you know, you know the, the, there was a real, you know, unfortunate kind of catalyst for that, which was the 2012 Sandy Hook shootings. And, you know, as we all know, that just really um 
it, it changed the tone and the trajectory of of gun rights and and this and the whole national dialogue. And you know, part of what happened for me is I started. You know, I was brand new to the industry too, right? So I was just trying to learn as much as I could around kind of like what 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 have I literally walked into? And when I started to look at mass shooting statistics and sort of these mass shooting dynamics uh, and, and, and all the numbers, I, I stumbled across all the suicide numbers and learned that about two thirds of firearms deaths are a result of suicide. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, and I'm, I'm, I like to, I, I'm, a, I'm a data driven person. I, I tend to make my decisions based on data and facts and and figures and such. And so I remember saying, why are we dedicating so much mental space and time, money, effort on mass, like preventing mass shootings when we have two thirds of the problem lying in in the suicide uh, realm. And then I started to sort of look, hey, you know, what is the NRA and the NSSF or other gun groups? What what are they doing in the suicide prevention space? And, And back then, there just wasn't a coordinated, dedicated effort that I saw. Um, I had seen, some, you know, I'm sure, like some articles about uh, about about suicide prevention, and you know, some of the mental health articles that were sort of written about. I mean, there are sort of just these onesie twosie sort of right right articles here and there, but no, I didn't really see any like comprehensive right programs, um, and I just uh, I wanted to. I wanted to make a difference. You know, that that's sort of at a very high level. I, I came in the firearms industry to to try and do good and make a difference. And um, you know, I guess whenever I see a lack of activity in a certain space that I think should be getting attention, like for me, like that that's a huge opportunity, right? That more people need to be talking about suicide prevention and uh, there, there are a number of, of, of things that we can all do as individual gun owners, uh, gun, you know, second amendment advocates, even anti-gun people. Right. I mean, it just, it just doesn't really matter what your gun politics are that, but everybody can, can play a part in reducing suicides. Uh, and, it, and like with everything, it just comes down to education, right. And, telling uh right uh you know, the second amendment community and gun shop owners what they what they can do to help um and so you know back in i think it was shot show 2000 maybe 15 or 16 when the american foundation for suicide prevention they had a, a workshop sort of like a seminar um and they yeah talked about right the what what they were uh kind of hoping to do and, and some of the initiatives that they were sort of uh, starting to think about uh, right having table tents in gun shops with uh, right su- the suicide prevention hotline information and um, but I remember after that workshop it was really funny right sometimes you go to these conferences and conventions you go to a talk and it's good but then it's sometimes afterward right where you really kind of see the impact and. After uh, this American Foundation for Suicide Prevention workshop was done, a bunch of gun shop owners and range owners 
and um, military veterans were coming up to the speaker and just talking about how how happy they were that the firearms industry was openly talking about this, right? And the, mm -hmm. the, these the, you know these individuals that were coming up to the speaker were were talking about how they have been impacted by suicide. Right? They had you know a customer right who came into their range, rented a firearm, and right blew out their brains in front of the whole staff. And they had, you know, had to go through counseling and, um, right, veterans who also had, you know, friends suffering from PTSD and, you know, took their own lives with, with a firearm. And, um, and then, you know, it's, and so I was heartened to kind of see that support from the, from, from, from the community, from the firearms community, because I think the firearms industry, I think, incorrectly assumed for the longest time that that the that that you know manufacturers and gun owners did not want to talk about this or they didn't want to support suicide prevention initiatives and and i think we we have seen that that's that's not true and everybody wants to 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 do something good and um right to be a part of something you know that's that that's noble. That is, um, you know, we can make a difference. And the, the, you know, the conference we went to was great, right? Where we saw this overlap of public and private institutions working together, right? The NSSF, the AFSP, the veterans affairs department, we had mental health practitioners learning about, right? How do you interface, right? With, with a, uh, a, a troubled patient who owns guns, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you talk to, how do you talk to a patient about, about, uh, about gun ownership? And, um, like that was just really incredible to see this momentum, uh, you know, continue on. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I was, I was so, so happy to, to be there with you and, and, and our other colleagues. It was just a really, really incredible moment in the, yeah. in the overall initiative. Yeah, I think there's so much more. So I think for the longest time, because this is the way I always looked at my peers and my friends in the firearms industry, especially the ones on the manufacturing level, is I feel like they've always been open to have the discussion and do something. I feel like many times they look at the situation and go, well, mental health is the enemy of us. They want to take our guns but they were like, Hey, if they could tell us what to do, we would do it. Right. And I think that at least with walk the talk America, what, what I want to do is, is shift that it's like, we can take the information that the mental health professionals give us, the people that work in suicide prevention, and then we could figure out how to work it around our firearms, our tools, right? The boxes that the am ammunition comes in like we can be a gateway for people to get the help they need without fear of consequence. Um, and I think there's a lot of innovative ways that we can do it. And that's what really, you know, when I look at the firearms industry, I say like, Hey, look, we, we can work, we work together. You know, we, we have a bridge to the information, but it's up to us to really think outside of the box and find solutions that don't deal with legislation. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's a shift happening. I, I know there's a shift happening because I keep showing up to these great events and I see like NSSF over to the right, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then everybody I'm bringing in with my crew, 
Um, and I think that we're, we're starting to discover that. And I think on the flip side, I think the mental health community um, in the suicide prevention community is, is starting to see that, hey, yeah, there are some really cool things that we could do. I never even thought of that, right? Like, you know, I, I, I take, for example, the mental health flyer that Arms Corps, or High Point, or Bursa puts in the box of their firearms, you know, the Walk the Talk America one that leads to the screenings. Like, who, whoever would have thought that they would just say yes to that? <laughs> all, you yeah. had to do, all you had to do was ask, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's like, it's incredible, right, that, uh, you know, Walk the Talk America has been been doing such incredible things in the space. And, and like you said, sometimes all it takes is someone asking, right, can I, can I do this good thing? And, um, you know, I think many of us would... Uh, be, be surprised that, you know, more times than not, you know, people are willing to, to help out and, and say yes. Uh, but uh, it, it takes, uh, right, people's time and energy. And uh, obviously, there's, there's uh, some dollars and cents in, involved as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been very, very, very exciting to see the, uh, the continued focus and the, the conversation is continuing to um, evolve and more people are becoming uh, right more comfortable talking about mental health and um, you know on the topic of mental health right it's been it's been so interesting for me to um, kind of think about the, the the taboo kind of component that sometimes exists about mental health right where it's like yeah, I, I, I grew up in a, in a culture where, oh, you know, talking about any mental health problems that you might have is considered weakness. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's um, extremely unhelpful mentality and, and uh, a very like kind of toxic culture. Right. Where it's like, oh, you know, if you're having, you know, mental health problems, all right, just just suck it up or, you know, uh, ha- ha- have a drink and sleep, sleep it off. You know, you'll you'll feel fine, you know, the next the next day or whatever. And, uh, you know, for for a lot of people like that's that only that those are like coping mechanisms, right? right? If you're just relying on like tobacco, alcohol, uh, food, you know, kind of other kind of vices. Um, And yeah, I mean, I, I have, uh, you know, now that I'm an adult, you know, my perspective is, you know, seeking out mental health means that you have the courage to understand that you need help. And that's a hard place to to get to for for a lot of people. And you know, I'll, I'll speak personally for me. You know, it's like it usually comes down to pride, right? I'm I I tend to like take care of things of uh, take care of things by myself, right? I I I am now you know definitely like able to reach out and ask people for help. But if uh, if I had my way, like oh like if I can just take care of it, I will, right? And um, but I think, uh, like I mentioned, like shifting my own mentality to say, hey, yeah, if, uh, if I ever run into like a mental health issue that I'm very comfortable saying to myself, I should consider seeing a therapist, mm-hmm. right, or a mental health practitioner, and I'm not going to feel ashamed about it. I don't care if any, I mean, you know, no one in my like immediate family would, you know, care about that. Like they would also think it's a good thing. So, you know, I wouldn't have to worry about um, any kind of external shame, you know, coming from them, which is, 
which is helpful, but at least from within myself, yeah, I, I wouldn't be ashamed to say I need to go get some help. It's not, it's not a reflection of, uh, any kind of failure, right. That I, uh, may think of like myself or, or, uh, or anything like that. Um, so what I love, what I love, uh, you know, seeing is, uh, right. Uh, a lot of people, right. Our friends, our family who, who are strong enough to say, right. Hey, I need to seek some, uh, some, some, uh, some, some therapy, um, and go get some help. And, and then you're right, you see, families and friends and coworkers, right. Supporting, supporting those people. And, um, I think especially in the pandemic, a lot of those, uh, mental health resources are, are harder to, to, to obtain at the moment, right. One of our typical safety nets is our social network, right. Through our family and friends and seeing them in person and right. Being able to, you know, more easily talk through issues, and now it's like with social distancing and not really being able to go to people's homes. And, you know, there's only so much you can accomplish in like Zoom meetings and <laughs> Google Hangouts <laughs> right. better than nothing. Um, but yeah, these are, these are definitely challenging times, right? With everybody cooped up and, um, you know, more isolated than usual. But um, yeah, so. Yeah, it, it, uh, I, uh it's funny. I was actually going to ask you that. I had a question here for you, and I, it, one of it was flat out: how do you how do you handle or how do you deal with your mental health? Um, so you just you hit that perfectly. <laughs> We're like dolphins. <laughs> you knew yeah. it was coming. <laughs> but um, um, I it took me. You know, I relate to everything you say there because I grew up. Uh, you know like a lot of my formative years in Jersey with my Italian grandfather and, and uncle that, you know, they were a little bit of a throwback to the old school days where it was kind of like, you talk about things like that. And it was like, I'll give you something to have anxiety about. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, the belt comes out and you're like, Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and every time you try to talk serious to my family, they would just use humor. You know, like you couldn't, there wasn't those conversations, but I just realized like for me, it almost took like 40 years for me to actually, when I was feeling, when I was depressed or in a bad way to actually say, you're going through a a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't, my brain wouldn't use that phrase, right? Like it was just like, times are tough or I hate this and, you know, I'll beat this or whatever. But, you know, recently, especially with everything that's going on and the uncertainty and um, just, I think my work in the mental health side of things, I, I do that more often. I, I go, you know, your mental health's not right right now. You know, you need to do something, you change something up, you know, so I'll pick like a day to just disconnect from my phone, you know, or, not look at social media or not watch the news and I'll focus on something, you know, but it took a a long time for me to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, you know, a a real low point a few months ago during all the shelter in place stuff. And, um, yeah, the, 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 there were, there were like a, a few triggers for me. One, which is like, we just have a lot of homeless people, in, in, in the neighborhood I live in and I live in a very nice neighborhood. It's, it's, it's fairly upscale, but with, uh, 
the drug addicts, with the homeless. I mean, I have human crap, you know, like on the sidewalk, like on my driveway, on my neighbor's driveway, you know, every so often. And um, my dog actually ate some, some poop, you know, on the sidewalk a few months ago. And that just put me, it just like, it just triggered just this tremendous amount of frustration and anger. And for almost a week, I was just so just genuinely sad and like pissed off, uh, angry. And, um, you know, at least I knew there were some abnormal circumstances, right. To how I was feeling. It's, it's really just about all the pandemic and, you know, shelter in place stuff. So at least I knew, okay, like, and it only lasted a week or two. Um, and there were some other, you know, small kind of triggers mm-hmm. that kind of like, you know, kind of piled one, one thing on top of another. Um, but I remember saying to myself, okay, Hey, you know, if this lasts for more than a few weeks, you know, if I need to, uh, to get help, you know, I knew my, my employer offers, um, you know, three, three, free one hour, you know, uh, count like psychological counseling services. Um, and like my health insurance, you know, also has, uh, you know, coverage for, uh, for, for, you know, therapists as well. So I actually went as far as understanding, okay, Hey, right. If I wanted to go talk to a therapist about things that are going on that I actually, I literally have like the phone number, right. Like in my, my inbox. So mm-hmm. if I need to like schedule an appointment, I can just you know, do that straight away. Uh, that's awesome. I mean, that that's great too, that you have access to that. I think people forget to check that too. Sometimes, you know, like call your insurance company, you know, through your employer to find out what options are available to you. If you do find yourself, you know, with a crisis or trauma going on, or just, you don't feel right. Um, you know, it, it, yeah. And one, and one thing that I kind of found with uh, my employer's um, mental health uh, kind of perk and, and benefit is uh, these calls are anonymous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a little bit different than like going to find a therapist and, um, you know, they sort of, you know, have all your information. Um, these like kind of three free sessions, uh, they can be, you know, anonymous if you want. So, you know, I think sometimes, um um, that anonymity can help people open up. Right. Cause it's like, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk to someone you don't know is like it can be easier to talk to somebody about your problems, um, versus like talking to your parents or talking to your spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we all know you can sometimes feel a little more vulnerable or you're afraid of, uh, you know, maybe some retribution or how they might react, but Hey, right. A, a perfect stranger. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> tell tell a stranger like, yeah, whatever you want. But sometimes they're just getting things off your chest. That can be that can be a, a huge, huge benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Chris, thank you for coming on. Um, I really appreciate your time in this. Uh, I think you you know this podcast is going to be an important one for the series for Walk the Talk America. So thank you. Can you tell everyone where they can get a hold of you, or you know, I know you have a website. Just let, let the people know where they could see at. Yeah, sure thing. So yeah, my website's topshotchris.com. And um, for anybody who's interested in uh, checking out my book, Shoot to Win, um, they're uh, available wherever books are sold, you know, iTunes, Amazon, 
Uh, if you want an autographed copy, uh, you can buy one through my website, topshotchris.com. And then I'm also on social media, uh, mostly Instagram and Facebook, um, at Top Shot Chris. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's where people can, uh, can follow me if they're interested. All right. Well, sounds good, man. Listen, I've kept you long enough. I really appreciate it. Um, I will be working with you in the future on a few things. I, I saw there was an email that came through from Russell. Uh, we, we have to continue our work there um, with the stuff that Russell wants to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully things will get better and we can kind of get back to traveling and things like that. I really hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get there. And um yeah, thank you so much for having me uh on the show and yeah, we're we'll we're definitely gonna keep working together and there's uh a lot of a lot of good work ahead of us. And um yeah, can't like like you're saying, I can't wait till we can all travel again and see each other in person, hang out and uh have uh have fun planning what's next. Yeah, exactly. Well thanks a lot. Cool. cool.